Blog Talk Radio. And good evening, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to King Jordan Radio for Wednesday, March the 5th, and Thursday, March the 6th, 2014. This is King Jordan you're listening to. Tonight on the show, we're going to have a legal defense attorney, Joey Jackson, from CNN. But before we get anywhere, let me give a shout-out to Sharon, who runs the Joey Jackson fan page on Facebook. So you might want to check that out, Joey Jackson fans on Facebook. Of course, you could keep up with us at King Jordan Radio on Facebook and uh, Mr. King Jordan on Twitter and www.kingjordansportsandmedia.com. Also, ladies and gentlemen, we interviewed the Honky Tonk Man last week. Uh, if you go into the archives, you can take a listen to that. And uh, that will be, uh, that was a great interview. Um, of course, every Wednesday and Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, we uh, do, uh, we, we like to grab somebody from the legal field and talk what's going on in the world of news. And, of course, the Blade Runner Oscar Pistrello himself uh, is on trial. But... At this time, let me please introduce to you, he is a New York defense attorney. He is an HLN and CNN legal analyst. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome my dear friend, Joey Jackson. Good evening, Joey, and welcome to King Jordan Radio. King Jordan, how are you? How's things? You okay? Everything's good, Joey. How are you? Good to be with you. Better now that I'm speaking to you. Thanks so much. <laughs> How was your You're doing Tuesday? a great job, Jordan, a great job. So you got to keep it up, you know? You really do. Well, thank you. That means a lot. Happy belated Fat Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Mardi Gras, right? Mardi Gras time, New Orleans. That's right. That's right. That's right. Okay, I want to play a little uh, piece from the timeline of the uh, uh, the Oscar Padilla trial, and then on the other side, uh, I want to talk about it, okay? Absolutely. Valentine's Day 2013, marked not by romance, but by gunfire inside the home of Oscar Pistorius. Neighbors say they heard arguing. Pistorius says he heard an intruder. Whatever it was, it left Pistorius's girlfriend, Rita Steenkamp, dead, shot in the head, arm, and hip. So was it murder or a terrible mistake? Oscar Pistorius detailed his side of the story in a rare affidavit given to the court. Hours before the fatal shooting, Pistorius wrote, it had been a normal evening at home, a quiet dinner, TV and bed for him, yoga for her. He told the court hours after they went to bed, he was jolted awake, filled with fear after hearing a noise in the bathroom. Pistorius wrote in the affidavit, 
I grabbed my 9mm pistol from underneath my bed and screamed at the intruder to get out. Then, he explained, he fired shots at the toilet door and shouted to Riva to phone the police. To me, the instinctive thing, you hear sounds in the bathroom. If only How are you, say, fine, sir? Hey, honey, did you hear that? You do that first before you move to the bathroom to fire According to the affidavit, Pistorius, who said yes, he did sir. not have his prosthetic leg right? on at the time of the shooting, found Surviving food lamps slumped world, over, you know? adding, she died in my <laughs> Thank arms. You. Pistorius' agent got a frantic call at 4 a.m. All right. well, we had this voice of a girl frantically on the other side shouting, please, you have to rush to Pretoria, you have to come to Oscar's house. Prosecutors say this was no tragic mistake, that Pistorius calculated the perfect angle, aiming downward at the toilet. And there's this, a floor plan of the apartment, which the state says proves Pistorius could not have crossed the bedroom without realizing Steenkamp wasn't in bed. Photos leaked to the media by police show the bloody crime scene. Hi, Reva. This is shooting the December cover for SHM. Reva Steenkamp was just 29, a model and law school graduate. These exclusive photos are from happier times. Given to CNN from a source close to Pistorius, they are some of the last photos the couple had taken together. Reva Steenkamp's family still heartbroken. You sort of wake up in the morning expecting Reva still to give a phone call. Still so many unanswered questions. Did Steenkamp really enter the bathroom unnoticed? And why lock the door? Was she trying to protect herself from Pistorius or from an intruder? And what about the bloodied cell phones inside the bathroom? How did they get there? Pistorius was charged with premeditated murder but released on little more than $100,000 bond. He's been awaiting trial here at his uncle's multi-million dollar mansion. Oscar is uh, like we all are, still very traumatized. Some who know Pistorius tell CNN they're not surprised this happened. He would have a trip switch and uh, you know, he'd get violent and angry and he'd fight with people and he'd cause a lot of problems. And I mean, that's, the incident with me and him was because he was drunk at a party and he started shouting and swearing on the phone. Pistorius's past will be on full display at trial. The Blade okay, Runner himself Joey, is expected if, uh, to testify. You take away Oscar, you take away the and forensic Blade Runner. This looks like a uh, open and shut case to me. If you just take away the celebrity factor, it uh, doesn't look a, like a reasonable person was fearing for his life. Uh, that being Oscar, what's your take on this trial thus far? Well, at this point, it, you know, it seems as though the prosecution is certainly putting it together. Now, what do I mean by that? If you remember the prosecution's opening statement, that it essentially said that the affidavit that Oscar Pistorius put forth, saying that there was an intruder and that he was fearful and that he had no idea that it was uh, Riva in the bathroom, that, that whole story is nonsense. That essentially was their opening statement. That, and remember, the reason that that was their opening statement was because he put forward, Oscar Pistorius that is, an affidavit at the time of his bail setting forth the reasons why this happened. And he even in that affidavit said, look, I know it's unusual for purposes of bail to lay out the story, but here's what it is. So remember, this is an interesting case in that 
his entire story was laid out and was on full display at the very beginning. So the state had an opportunity to go through each and every line of what he said and really try to make headway with discrediting everything he said, and that's their trial objective. Because if you believe Oscar story, then he's not guilty. It was all an accident. South Africa is a high crime area. He was fearful, predicated upon it being a crime area. He had no idea that it was Reva in the bathroom and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. If you believe him, then he's not guilty. If you disbelieve that and think that it's far-fetched that, you know, he would be yelling for her and yelling for Reva and yelling for her to call 911 and not hearing any words out of the bathroom and not hearing anything about her, and then he would fire shots with the bathroom door closed, if you think that whole story is preposterous, then he's guilty. Now, why do I say they're making headway? Because the first, at least, a couple of witnesses, really, they were the neighbors, uh, and they weren't in close proximity. I mean, they were some distance away. I think it's 170 meters or so that they were away. But what was their testimony, the husband and wife? The testimony was that they heard a woman screaming for help, petrified for her life, feared fearful out of her mind, and after she was yelling for help, you heard these shots, three shots, and then you didn't hear her yelling anymore, and then you heard a man saying help. So if you believe the the husband and wife who have testified so far, then he's done, because that's not consistent with his story, which is her not screaming and them not arguing and her, her not saying a piece. So, so far, they've been able to do that, and I think that certainly, you know, we have to make clear, Jordan, that, you know, it's a judge trial, and as a result, you're not convincing a jury, you're convincing a single judge, and I think that, you know, so far, there's a whole lot of trial left. They have 100, the, the state does, 107 witnesses on the list. They've only gone through three, so there's 104 if they call them all, but at least early indications are that, you know, I think the defense has had some problems. Okay. Uh, this, like you said, is being tried. Oh, uh, this is the uh, choice of guilt or innocence will come down to one judge who is noted for being tough on men that uh, hurt women. That's the word uh, that goes on there in South Africa. And the other big story over there is, as you pointed out, there is no jury. How much I would think, uh, from a defense standpoint, that would definitely hurt Oscar Pistorius much more than a single judge who is known to be very tough. What's your take on that? Yeah, here's why I think you're right. I think it hurts him that there's a judge because it takes the celebrity factor I won't say out of it because that's not to suggest that there are political pressures that would be on the judge to, you know, pretty much give the South Africa's favorite son the benefit of the doubt. So she might certainly be under some political pressure to, you know, to really overlook certain things and perhaps see things in his favor. That being said, you know, it's far different when you have a jury that's celebrity struck where they could pretty much say he can do no wrong. And if anybody speaks against him, they're wrong, he's right, and he gets acquitted. So I think the fact that there's a judge certainly favors the state instead of the defense. Yes, and uh, this is the first time that they're actually, uh, I looked this up, that they're actually letting cameras do it 
because, quote-unquote, they want to show the rest of the world that it's not such a bad, uh, you know, way of doing things, the criminal system in South Africa. So that's a really uh, questionable decision now for the judge because, on one hand, uh, she wants to show that she's not going to be favorited, give favoritism to uh, the Blade Runner, but on the other hand, uh, she's on national television all over the world, i.e. O.J. Simpson. So right. she's in a tough spot no matter what uh, uh, verdict she renders. Do you agree? Well, I, I do agree, and here's why. For exactly the reason you say, what happens is, is the world is watching. This is not something that's behind closed doors where nobody right. knows what the evidence and testimony will be. The world is watching, and the world is going to hear the evidence. And if at the end of the trial the world is convinced of his guilt, then it would be pretty hard, no matter what political pressure the judge may be under, um, you know, by the populace to, to find him not guilty, she will be under a lot of pressure to, you know, render a, a finding of guilt in the event that the evidence turns out that way. And so I do think, by virtue of having the cameras in the courtroom for the first time, that it, it really puts a lot of pressure, uh, you know, on the judge to, to really render a verdict that is just, that has nothing to do with celebrity, that has nothing to do with pressure, but that has everything to do with the facts and the interest of justice. And that's what this case needs to turn on if South Africa is going to be promoted around the world as being a place that lives by the rule of law. And also, Joey, he is out on bail. When do you ever see somebody charged with this heinous type of act out on bail on murder? Are you serious? The answer is never. Um, that's right. the simple answer to the question. You never see that. If somebody is charged with a crime of murder, then, you know, they don't see the light of day. And in the event that they're acquitted, then certainly, you know, they're released because that's what the law demands. Once you're acquitted, you, you know, you go home. But in the interim, you know, you don't even see an, on, people out on an ankle bracelet. You see them remanded, and that is in custody until a decision is made. So y you're right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the... Uh the thing with this trial is, uh, like getting back to the jury system, it they could create that quote-unquote reasonable doubt, but I keep going back to that just one judge, uh, very crazy. But the only other thing I wanted to bring up was that he put out a, a statement uh, a few weeks ago when it was like the one-year anniversary, and, uh -huh. and he said something in words of the effect of, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that this accident happened, blah, blah, blah. It almost seems scripted. If you were his <laughs> defense attorney, <laughs> would, would you have liked him not to do this or to do this? He had to do that, and he has to do it because, remember, it's, a lot of it is perception, it's imagery, and, you know, what would it be like if he said nothing about it? Oh, he's cold, he's callous, he really did it. He's calculated. If he didn't do it, he would say he loved her. So, you know, no matter what you say, there's going to be criticism, you know, based upon what you do. And here the criticism is, is that he's full of it, that he's doing it because it's an act and he's doing it to, you know, to show that he's a gentleman when he really is a murderer. But if he didn't do it, then the issue is that, you know, he, he should have done it because he should have cared enough to respect her family and the one he loved. And so, you know, it's a real catch-22. But I was advised to do what he did do, though. 
Yeah, I mean, and usually people do that for the future jurors to send a message. Uh, this definitely uh, was not for any future jurors to sit in on this. So some analysts that I've spoken to said he should have put no, uh, nothing out there because there's no jury. And, yeah, uh, but, but there's still, but what happens is, is there's still public perception and there's still a judge. And the reason, even though there's a single judge trying the case, public perception is important because remember, the judge is really, you know, again, a judge is supposed to not at all have any, be influenced by the public, be influenced by anything. The judge is supposed to just follow the law. However, that being said, the extent of political pressure that the judge will feel, if any, is going to be predicated upon how the people feel about him. And if the people feel, you know, really warm-hearted and kind to him, then the judge is going to be under the pressure of the populace to, do, to be likewise. But if the people hate him, then the judge, what pressure is she going to be under? So it's a tough call. Attorneys do things differently and handle things differently, but they made the call, and I don't disagree with it. Also, a lot of people say what he has going for him is that in South Africa, the uh, murder uh, rate there is very, very high compared to over here where we are. Is that something that's It's definitely something that's important. And the reason that's important, because it goes to state of mind. And what do I mean? In the event, for example, you're in an apartment and you have any reason to believe that there's somebody else there, you might act with a heightened sense of urgency because you know the crime rate, particularly when you, as he said, recall there was construction being done and his windows were open and, you know, there could have been a ladder leading up to his apartment. So it goes to how his state of mind would have been. If he's in some area where there's no crime, then why would you be grabbing a gun and overreacting? But if you're in an area where there's significant crime, you might act as he did act, and that's the whole issue it goes to what he reasonably believed he needed to do to protect himself and Riva as well. And another thing a lot of people were saying, that the cross-examination would have been objected to 20 times and twice on Sunday, uh, the way he went about it, his lawyer, you know, saying so many things that would never be admissible in a U.S. court. Do you agree with that? Uh, I would say not 20 times, probably 25 and three times on Sunday. There would be objections to. <laughs> um, it's a little different. <laughs> it's a little different, Jordan. And, and the reason is, is that, look, in the United States, we ask questions, you know. It's like, did you hear, you, you know, your apartment was 170 meters away. Is that correct? And as a result of that, it'd be fair to say you didn't live next door. Is that right? And since you didn't live next door, you lived a, a distance away where there were probably, you know, 40 other neighbors in between you and where he lived. Is that correct? Well, I don't know the number, but it would be significant. So in other words, what am I saying? In the United States, cross-examinations, you ask specific questions. You can get yes or no answers. In fact, you know, you can demand yes or no answers, and it's really the lawyer testifying. It seems in South Africa you're allowed to give summations during your cross-examination. I mean, there was one point today where, you know, the witness was testifying, the neighbor, and the, and the, the neighbor started off by saying, well, honestly, sir, uh, honestly, no, they say my lord or my lady. Honestly, my, my lady, lady, I think that, yeah. And so the attorney then begins to launch it to the speech. 
What do you mean honestly? Well, you know, it bothers me when you say honestly because then right away I really get concerned because everything you say should be honest. And so if you say something <laughs> starting with honestly, I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, a judge would have my head if I said that. They'd be like, Mr. Jackson, you know, are you familiar with the rules of evidence? So in South Africa, certainly, you're, you know, it seems like the, the attorney in trying the case in cross-examining is giving speeches throughout his whole cross-examination that would never be allowed in the United States. Yeah, and do you have a, uh, a gut feeling on this? I know we're only in um, the know, first inning. <laughs> we, yeah, right? we're, we're in. We're, we have one out in the first inning, so I'll say it's a long game. But I'll say that right. the prosecution is off to a good start. And I know, you know, there are many who believe that the attorney's poking holes, and the attorney, you know, they're they're not credible witnesses. It's a husband and wife, and they could have colluded, and they could have made it up, and the stories are consistent. And that's one way to view it. But another way to view it is that they heard what they heard, are sure what they heard, and he, the attorney, is doing his job by attempting to convince the judge otherwise, but they appear to be a bit rock solid. So I will say it's a nine-inning ball game. We have plenty of time to go. I have you know, no idea what will happen, but early indications are that the state is doing its job, and certainly Oscar Vistorius you know, has a battle ahead of him if he's going to win. Now, Joey, will the defense put on a case, and can they? How does that work in uh, South Africa? Sure. I mean, the defense will have an opportunity to present, you know, any and all witnesses that they think are appropriate or not appropriate. And, you know, they'll, be, they'll have their chance to state their claim, but we're way away from that. And you know what? It, it's... You know, a defendant doesn't have to put on a case. It depends upon how the evidence unfolds. And so we'll see if the state proves up their case, then, you know, you need to scramble to make your own. In the event, however, that the state doesn't, then, you know, prosecution doesn't need to. The other point that briefly I should make, Jordan, is that there are a, a number of other charges. He's also being charged with recklessly yes. firing a gun. And the reason I point that out to you is because, that, you know, and, and these are not, not recklessly firing a gun as it relates to, to Riva. Recklessly firing a gun on two independent other instances, at a, one at a restaurant and one outside of his vehicle. Now, that would never come in the United States because that's what we call propensity evidence. What do I mean? It means that, you know, look, if I was careless with a gun on Monday and I'm charged with the murder on Friday, then clearly I had to do the murder on Friday because I was careless with a gun on Monday. We call that propensity, and since evidence of what you did before has nothing to do with what you're charged of now, in the United States we don't allow that in. But to the extent that South Africa only has a judge, they're less concerned about how a jury would be persuaded by your prior conduct, and so they allow the judge to consider all these other extraneous side issues during the course of the trial, and I should say quickly that one witness today who was at the restaurant testified, a boxer, indicating, you know, that Oscar Pistorius did, there was a discharge of the firearm in the restaurant. And I think the critical point, I don't think it hurts him in the murder case. I think it hurts him because the boxer also said that Oscar said, look, could somebody else take the rap from me? And he got someone else to say, oh, it was me who fired it, not him. And that, of course, goes to the issue of credibility and we get back to his affidavit as to whether or not he really was in fear, and that's why he killed Riva, or was that just a story of him trying to elude blame like he was that time at the restaurant? 
And also, I read that the head, the lead detective, was kicked off the case. Did you hear about that? Yeah, the lead detective was. That was early on, though, and that was as a result of, you know, certainly some improprieties of the lead detective and some sloppiness and, you know, of the lead detective early on. Um, you know, but I don't see that that's going to have much of a, a, an interplay with the actual case. Again, it's in front of a judge. Uh, you know, that has done in the past. There are people working on the case now, and so I think the judge is going to evaluate it on the merits of the case as it exists now irrespective of, you know, what happened with the lead detective. Uh, do you see the lawyer uh, for the defense arguing to the judge, hey, listen, judge, the te- detective was kicked off. You know, we can't trust, we can't, this is definitely beyond the reasonable doubt, or whatever they consider beyond the reasonable doubt. Can he use that as ammo? It might work with a jury, you know, sort of like O.J. Simpson. You say that Mark Furman's a racist and the jury gets all upset. And they're like, oh, my God, really? He's not guilty. <laughs> but, you know, we have a judge here, and I think a judge knows to segregate certain information out. Like, okay, this one could have done a bad job. Does that mean that he didn't kill her? This one could have done a poor job at the crime scene. Does that mean he didn't kill her? This detective could have a salty past or have done things that, engage in misconduct, does that mean he didn't kill her? So, you know, I think a judge is kind of, you know, knowledgeable enough to separate out issues that are of, you know, sort of side issues that are not really relevant to the to the case. Absolutely. Okay, let's turn to another story. The New York Knicks, they're doing everything but shooting the basketball good. And, in fact, <laughs> the, the only shooting of uh, any magnitude came last week when New York guard Raymond Felton uh, was found with a gun and his wife, well, let me play the clip for you and it'll, it'll tell us everything about it. We'll come back on the other side. Sure. Nick's point guard Raymond Felton was arraigned on two felony weapons possession charges in Manhattan criminal court on Tuesday. Felton was arrested early Tuesday morning and was released on $25,000 bail. Under the terms of his bond, Felton can travel to games, and his court date has been set for June 2nd. Neither Felton nor the Knicks issued a statement. NBA spokesman Tim Frank said the league is monitoring the case. Felton is in his third season with the Knicks and ninth in the league. He's averaging 10.4 points and shooting 40% from the field on this season. All right, Joey, you know Plaxico Burris for just shooting himself was put in jail in New York for two years. You know the rapper Little Wayne was put in for a half a year because they found it on the bus. What are they going to do with Raymond Felton? And can you explain the differences in New York City? That's why I wanted to get you on here uh, in terms of what he's charged with. Sure. All right. The first, first things first, I, I think this case is a lot different from the Plaxico Burris case, and here's why. In Plaxico Burris' case, yes, it is true that, you know, Plaxico didn't hurt anyone. He hurt himself, and he shot himself. But Plaxico had a gun at a nightclub, and, you know, the gun was loaded, and it was in a, it was in a public place. You have to remember that in this particular case involving Felton, the gun was really at his apartment, and his ex-wife, or soon-to-be ex-wife, because she filed divorce, said, hey, by the way, authorities, my, you know, the, my ex-husband or soon-to-be ex-husband has this gun here, 
and I don't want to hear anymore. So her divorce attorney brings the gun loaded into the precinct and says, you know what, this gun was in their apartment. And we also have to, so, I mean, he has, Plexico has his gun outside in a public place and it discharges. Raymond Felton has his gun in his apartment with the person who he thought loved him and, you know, he loved her, but apparently he cheated on her and so she's scorned and upset and so she gets her lawyer pretty much to tattletale. So the distinction is, is that he didn't have the gun anywhere. The further distinction, he being Felton, the further distinction is that Felton had purchased the gun and registered the gun and, and, and did follow all the protocols of North Carolina law. So he, he purchased it legally. He just never registered it in New York. Now, does that excuse it? No, because under New York law, what you have to do is it's an independent crime, criminal possession, um, unlawful possession of that weapon is really you have to register it. It's an e-felony in the event that you bring something, you know, from somewhere else, you bring it here, it, it, that's a problem. And so I'm not so just, saying the charges so just for having serious. the gun. So just for having yeah. the gun is a charge in its own right, no matter what Absolutely. you do with it. Yes, and, and you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an e-felony because he didn't register the gun. But I think there are mitigating circumstances in light of the fact that, you know, he really possessed the gun legally, and the gun was brought in. And we have precedent in New York because there was a Marine a couple of years ago who actually had a gun and brought it here. It was registered properly in the state that he lived. And he was handing it in to the Empire State Building officials. And they said, hey, wait a second. Is this registered? He said, no. And as a result of that, you know, he got probation. And so, you know, I think that there's precedent for the, what happened to Ray Felton. Uh, we certainly in New York State have very strict gun laws. We don't have any reciprocity with any other state. What does that mean? It means you could have your gun registered in 25 other states. You bring it into New York, we don't respect that. It needs to be registered here. Whereas other states, there's about 26 other states throughout the country who respect New York's law, where if we register the gun in New York, it's fine to carry it here, but there are strict gun laws here that apply. So, I mean, I see this as a case, uh, you know, that, is going to go down a little differently, you know, when his wife goes to the precinct and says tattletales on him, you know, and says, hey, he has a loaded gun. I don't want it here anymore. I think there are mitigating factors. I think we'll see a plea bargain. And, you know, I never like to predict what will happen. But, you know, I don't see uh, jail for in, in Ray Felton's future. I just don't based upon the, 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 uh, the facts and circumstances underlying his case. And also, if you remember, uh, we were talking about parts ago, we had a different mayor at that time, and uh, right out of the gate, he said he wants, you know, pretty much that Plaxico was going to jail, and he wanted to make an example out of Plaxico. And this is her word against his, whether he was, you know, putting it and uh, shoving the gun in her face and uh, threatening with, uh, that that part of the uh, story is uh, just her word against his, right? At this point. Well, it, it, you know, it's, it's funny uh, because you raise a great point, and that point is that we had a different mayor, and the mayor at that time just, you know, whoa, you know, this is crazy. Guns are killing everybody. You know, we need to hold them to a high standard. You know, celebrity or not, treat everybody equally, and so they threw the book at him. And so I think the fact that, that you know, Mayor Bloomberg was around for that is very significant. However... As to the facts of the case, I think it's not only he say, she say, because there's a paper trail behind the gun. In other words, the gun, the serial number, and everything else, he purchased it, and it's his. And there's a paper trail to establish that. 
I think the mitigating factor, which in law is the factor that doesn't excuse the crime, but that makes it a little less serious and a little more, you know, uh, a little easier for the DA to kind of plea bargain with, is the fact that, again, he had it in a home, he had it in North Carolina, he got it legally, he wasn't using it unlawfully against anybody, there was no discharge of the weapon, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that sort of gives him some wiggle room, his attorneys, to get a plea bargain that gives him probation and that slaps him on the wrist and allows him to play basketball. And if they start winning some games, who knows? <laughs> so that's how I <laughs> well, they got to win. <laughs> they lose every night, but that's a different story. Uh, before we let you go, I just wanted to. <laughs> if you that's wanted to, another conversation. I agree. Right. If you want to watch the New York basketball team, watch the Brooklyn Nets. They're they're playing well <laughs> right now, so that's the team to watch. Uh, before I let you go, Joey, uh, what was your take on the one mistrial on Michael Dunn? And do you think that uh, she will do? She will retry it, uh, Mrs. Corey. I mean, you know, look, jurors do what they do, and I get the fact that you know when you have twelve people sitting in a box and listening to evidence, people are going to have different perspectives. And so, you know, it wasn't a surprise that you would have three jurors, uh, you know, who say, listen, I kind of uh, think that as it related to Jordan Davis, that he might have been feeling fear and he might have protected himself, but as it related to the other people in the car, that there was no justification of shooting those teens, you know, that's not to say I'm in agreement uh, with the fact that the, there were three holdouts. But, you know, having, you know, done, tried a, a number of cases and been around a number of jurors, obviously, you know, everyone has a different perspective. And so, you know, it, it's unfortunate that he was not convicted of Jordan Davis's death on the retrial. I don't know that, you know, there's a different outcome because you still have people who have different perspectives and you still may have people who say, look, he was justified in that, even if it's the minority, because, again, our system requires everybody unanimous agreement. But, you know, I think there's a measure of justice here. And, uh, you know, the measure of justice being that the guy's going away uh, for a minimum of 60 years. And so to retry him, I guess there's a, a principle behind it. But I would really defer to the family of Jordan Davis, who has really been so classy and have been mm-hmm. so brave and have just really, you know, been the model of, of just what decent, kind, uh, and, and loving people should be. And so I think it's a testament to who their son was that he had such, you know, loving parents, um, you know, and I'm just hopeful that if anything happens behind this, I think there are two things that have, need to happen. Number one is a reevaluation of the stand-the-ground laws uh, and, as they exist, and number two, discussions about, you know, racial sensitivity, about tolerance, and about respect. Uh, you know, between the races, amongst the races, and amongst mankind. And so we'll see ultimately what Corey does with that case. But I do think this was very different than Zimmerman. Why? There was only one gunshot with Zimmerman. There was blood on his head, and he called 911 ASAP. What do you think yeah, on exactly. that topic? I, I absolutely agree. I think it's different in the extent that not in the self-defense case that you need there to be physical contact, because certainly you could be in fear you know, in other ways, but I think in Zimmerman there was a fight. There was something that to suggest, you know, that that there was a, an attack and there was a, a, a there was a struggle and there was something other than hey, turn down your music. And again, not to suggest that in Zimmerman 
you know, that the jury's uh, verdict or outcome, you know, is agreeable or appropriate. The jury did what they did. We have to respect it. But at least in that case, the jury concluded that based on the fight, whether Zimmerman started it, didn't start it, that there may have been justification, as the jury concluded here. You got a guy in a car, you know, and the team's in another car, and he rolls down the window to say, hey, are you talking to me? So I'm just not sure how that equates with, you know, him being in such fear. But 60 years, I think he'll have a a long time to think about it. Oh, yeah. And I saw you the day on verdict day with Don Lemon when he was having a heart attack about that mistrial on CNN. But uh, anyway, I want to thank you and uh, keep up the good work. How long do you think this Oscar uh, Blade Runner trial will last? I'll put it this way. A month from now, we'll probably be having another conversation about, uh, you know, them wrapping it up. But I, they, 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 uh. No, Jody Harris, a uh, long time like that? Nothing like that? Yeah, no, no, nothing like that. <laughs> but I, I'm thinking they blocked off three weeks for it. I'm thinking, you know, maybe four or five weeks in order to get it done. But, uh, you know, we'll see how, we'll see how it pans out. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on, Joey. Uh, you are one of the best at your craft, and uh, we look forward to watching you on HLN. And uh, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Keep up the wonderful job that you do, and, uh, you know, we need you to continue uh, just to sort of be on the crime watch and, you know, gauge these interesting things and have a fair discussion about facts and cases and issues. So thanks so much for all you do. All right, King Jordan? Oh, it works both ways, friend. Have a good Thank one, you. Joey. We'll see you, well. you soon. Thanks. 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 Bye-bye. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that was the great Joey Jackson. And you can see Joey Jackson on the HLN Network. Also, ladies and gentlemen, I have uh, a lot of other great shows. Uh, like I was saying before, uh, Aphrodite Jones on the Amanda Narc situation. Um, you might want to listen to that. Richard Herman was here on Justin Bieber. We have uh, all kinds of shows. We had Holly Hughes talking about the uh, Satanic Killer uh, with that one and uh, also talking about Michael Dunn. We also have Jason Lamb uh, who was talking about Woody Allen uh, if you want to go to that, go to blogtalkradio.com, Jordan-King. And then it'll say uh, archive shows. Scroll down there, and then you'll see all the shows. Okay. Remember to check out the Facebook pages of Joey Jackson fans. Uh, check me out on Facebook, King Jordan Radio, and King Jordan the group. Uh, King Jordan uh, on Twitter is Mr. King Jordan. Tuesdays at 8 p.m. is Wrestling Talk. Uh, Wednesday usually is World News Talk. And not tomorrow, but next week for sure. Tomorrow we might have a wrestler, but tomorrow for sure, We uh, next week for sure, we will have sports with uh, New York uh, Daily News Zone, Mighty Quinn. I want to thank everybody for joining us here tonight on King Jordan Radio. 
uh, hope everybody's good and uh, keep listening, folks. And uh, we will have the best information here as far as the uh, trial as it goes on. Stay with us here on the King Jordan Radio. Thanks a million, everybody. We will speak to you tomorrow. <laughs>